Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 13th of July, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Mark Anderson from the USA. And uh, we've also got Debbie Evans, our nursing correspondent. Okay, we'll get straight on with uh, the uh, United Nations and the World Health Organization yesterday. Uh, so as virus spreads freely, COVID-19 nowhere near over, says Tedros. Uh, let's just have a brief listen to what uh, Tedros said in his press conference yesterday. I'm concerned that cases of COVID-19 continue to rise, putting further pressure on stretched health systems and health workers, and also concerned about the increasing trend of deaths. The Emergency Committee on COVID-19 met on Friday last week and concluded that the virus remains a public health emergency of international concern. The committee noted their concern about several interlinked challenges. First, subvariants of Omicron like BA4 and BA5 continue to drive waves of cases, hospitalization and death around the world. Second, surveillance has reduced significantly, including testing and sequencing, making it increasingly difficult to assess the impact of variants on transmission, disease characteristics, and the effectiveness of countermeasures. Third, diagnostics, treatments, and vaccines are not being deployed effectively. The virus is running freely, and countries are not effectively managing the disease burden based on their capacity in terms of both hospitalization for acute cases and the expanding number of people with post-COVID-19 condition, often referred to as long COVID. So uh, everything's there, Brian. And uh, if anybody was in any doubt that uh, we that anything was over, uh, then there should be uh, a fixed of that yeah. particular uh, opinion. Uh, the question then is, what is the effect of this uh, in the UK? And uh, so let's have a look at the death statistics for another week. Uh, and uh, so what is the ONS saying here? The number of deaths registered in the UK in the, UK in the week ending 1st of July 2022 uh, was 11,828, of which 12 uh, percent, sorry, which was 12 percent, 12.1 percent above the five year average. Um, and that's 1,278 excess deaths. And of those deaths, they say 412 involved COVID-19. Um, but of those uh, 412, it was around 200. Uh, 60, I think it was, that uh, actually had COVID-19 as the underlying cause of death. But if we look at the right-hand side of that graph, once again, we see another week goes by uh, where there is significant excess mortality in the UK, which has got nothing whatever to do with COVID-19, but nobody seems to be too worried about that. Uh, we don't need to worry about the excess mortality uh, because the COVID narrative has kind of been dropped here, at least for the meantime. Uh, the number of deaths above the five-year average in private homes uh, was 565, which is 23.3% uh, uh, above the uh, five-year average. In hospitals, it was 9.7% above the five-year average, that's 403 excess deaths. In care homes, it was 8.7% above the uh, five-year average, 162 excess deaths, and it was actually below the five-year average for other settings, but that was three deaths fewer than the average. But we've got to remember that uh, this average number, this five-year average that they're talking about now, now includes uh, the two years of the COVID uh, excess mortality as well. So it's higher, it's much higher five-year average than we've seen in the previous two years. Um, well, yesterday, uh, the lovely Matt Hancock, here he is, uh, he's backing Rishi Sunak uh, to be the new leader of the Tory party uh, because Rishi's the best candidate to lead this country, says the man best equipped to judge these things. Uh, and of course, uh, Matt Hancock was uh, Mr. Lockdown himself. He was res responsible for everything uh, along those lines. And yesterday he was speaking at the Royal Statistical Society uh, and he was talking about lockdowns uh, and so on. Uh, now, unfortunately for Matt Hancock, because as you can see at the very bottom there, although the text is very small, uh, you, could, you could have registered to attend in person or online this event. And somebody did attend uh, in person. And it was this uh, person, Heiko uh, Koo, who is uh, one of the people who speaks at Speaker's Corner uh, very regularly uh, and uh, has done some pretty good work over the last couple of years on COVID issues. Anyway, he tweeted this uh, out this morning. 
uh, or yesterday, uh, this was 12 hours ago anyway, and uh, well, he had a few things to say about Matt Hancock or to Matt Hancock at that event. Uh, but before we hear what uh, Heiko had to say, uh, let's just have a listen to what uh, Matt Hancock said uh, about the, the issue of statistics and lockdown and so on. You know, it is worth touching on, I don't know whether you're going to come to this, that we did end up in a tangle a couple of times with the stats agencies. Um, and the, I, you know, to a degree that was, it, that was, a lot of that was quite unfair because they, they approached it as if we had, a, you know, a, a classic 40 year long data series and were, um, and, and the accusation, which was false, was that we were playing fast and loose with it. The truth was, we were short of data, um, and the measurability of some of that data was really, really tough, as in the accuracy of the data. Not, I don't mean that in the benevolent sense, just the ability to match the data we were publishing to the truth of what was going on on the ground. The communication out with government the communication of risk in a world of uncertainty is one of the hardest things to do in the public sphere, right? Because uh, tabloids, understandably, are looking for their story, and that's their, that's what they do, and that's their job. Um, and, um, uh, and so the ability to communicate is, in a, in a highly contested media environment, is a real art form. And so sometimes you have to... Um, choose what to present in a certain way. The forecasts were put out in the best, with the best of intentions. Then if they didn't happen, the people who made the forecasts were attacked in the press. You know, that is not fair. Um, and often the forecast didn't, you know, there was, this, there was this sort of theme going around, well, you know, you forecast that half a million people would, uh, would die in the first peak, and they didn't. But no, we brought in a lockdown. You know, that was a forecast of what would have happened if no action had been taken. Uh, so, Debbie, maybe I could uh, welcome you to the programme at this point and, and ask what your thoughts are there, because uh, I thought that was quite staggering, his position. Poor old Neil, uh, Neil Ferguson was getting a hard time because he was completely wrong once again, uh, but that was because of lockdown. Well, I mean, it's the first time I've seen that, Mike, and it, quite honestly, it's priceless, isn't it? I mean, does Matt Hancock really, he's talking about communication there, and clearly his communication is extremely questionable. I mean, does he realise that he's, does, has he got any self-awareness that he could have been filmed saying that? I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm a little bit speechless. I'm still trying to process it. Okay, well, it gets better. Uh, so let's look at the, the second clip because uh, he was, he got uh, asked a couple of questions at this point. Well, the questions I'd really like to answer are the things where you think that what I've said is rubbish. Do we, do, we have, do we have any, any questions from the floor? Yeah. The entire principles you've started the lockdowns with, the measures with, were based effectively on an unproven, at least at that time, a totally unproven argument that asymptomatic infection was a significant factor driving transmission. Uh, and there was no evidence for that whatsoever. The only evidence was based upon one German woman, sorry, one Chinese woman in Germany, who was taking large amounts of ibuprofen in order to prevent her from having symptoms. Now, I'm not saying that pre-symptomatic people who are just becoming ill couldn't transmit, at least in that first phase, but there was actually no evidence backing that up. Second point, there's a couple of points, so if you don't, I'll put them all together so you can tie them up. Uh, the lockdown, you mentioned the lockdown measures and the forecasts. Um, Neil Ferguson, because you, you said there wasn't 40 years of data, Neil Ferguson has been working on forecasting for decades, and the fact of the matter is, all his epidemiological forecasts have been wrong, every single one of them. And not by a factor of one or two, but by a factor of 10 or 20 or 30 or 40, BSC, uh, swine flu, bird flu, um, you name it, every single case, he was vastly incorrect. And the argument that there would have been 500,000 K dead had there not been a lockdown has no basis in fact, it's pure speculation, but because you can compare it with other countries around the world, and you can see, for example, in Sweden, or even North Korea now, for God's sake, or Belarus, or anywhere else, in the world, or Africa, there's no evidence whatsoever that the uh, lockdowns took and made any difference, in a beneficial difference, to the number of deaths. 
So I thought that was just a spectacularly well put question uh, and was put very calmly and so on. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I think this is where uh, people have real power that when they can get alongside politicians to ask questions in a calm, professional manner and they know their facts. Of course, the, the pressure is put straight onto them. So I would like to have seen you know, what the response was. So let's have a look okay. at the response then. <laughs> Yeah, you right. So the second point you make, sir, kind of demonstrates exactly what I was saying earlier, which is that making forecasts is hard, right? And making forecasts um, when you, of what would happen if you did nothing and then doing something and the forecast not coming true does not disprove the forecast. But now we know. But hold, on, hold on, I'm answering the question. Thank you. Um, so, so in a way, what your question has demonstrated why it's really hard to communicate this stuff in the, in the public domain. The second point on asymptomatic transmission is really important, and maybe I should have brought this up as a different example. There was, there was not the formal evidence of asymptomatic transmission right. on a clinical trial basis, and therefore it didn't get into the formal uh, advice to me, but we knew that there was a lot of um, uh, there were a lot of stories of it happening. What, 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 what's, what peer-reviewed documents proved it? What peer-reviewed documents? Well, we were locked at home for two years, yeah? We got a right to ask the, mini were the minister responsible. I'll handle it, So, you've had your say. This, is, this session is about how we measure these things better in future. Well, you asked for criticism. No, no, I, I'm afraid I'm not going to take anything further from okay. you. So, so this is it. Now the pressure is really coming on and this is on video and we can put this information out to the wider public showing just how devious these politicians are. Right. So, so the, the, the thing that really grabbed me there was that, of course, once the, once the question got too hard, he stopped looking at the person who asked the question and he started addressing other people in the room and, and particularly the, the chairman who was sitting beside him at the yeah. time because that's a safe person to speak to. That nobody that person wasn't going to challenge him in any way um so the body language was really amazing just very briefly debbie then uh thoughts on that oh i mean it was priceless wasn't it I, he was talking to himself i think i think he was trying to justify it all to himself and did you see all the, the hand actions and clearly he was he was on the defensive he got really angry you know he was asked a very reasonable sensible question and immediately jumped on the defensive and got angry. Why would he do that? And this could be the next health secretary if Rishi gets in. Well, indeed. And of course, that is the person who's uh, backing Rishi. So you then got to, uh, yes. Anyway, look, we'll have a little bit more uh, of that for extra uh, because I want, to, I want to talk about that a little bit more in extra. But anyway, let's move on. So, well, they put the policy into, uh, into effect, people locked in their homes and then people jabbed, as they like to say, the government or... Um, the, the government doesn't want to talk about vaccine adverse reactions as a result. But what they did want to do is hand out medals, uh, Debbie. So you picked up here on the award of the George Cross for the NHS. Yeah, the, uh, the George Cross was awarded to um, the NHS yesterday, despite the fact, of course, that we learned last week that NHS England is to reduce by 30 to 40 percent. Now, the George Cross is awarded for bravery and courage and honestly i mean most of the people in the medical profession and in the health profession that i've spoken to have said to me oh, and the way that they've treated us that we haven't had a pay rise we've not had any acknowledgement we've been railroaded out of our jobs we've been threatened and then this it's just theater yeah i'll just correct you there because of course this was some time ago but there's been more publicity about about the award and you'd also no uh, it was awarded yesterday oh it was that okay so it was actually the physical award yeah. was yesterday all right My apologies yeah. my mistake and uh, you've got a couple of other headlines here so here's nursing times may parsons praises stellar efforts of nhs staff on covid jab anniversary so it's all um it's all nice dresses and smiling faces and didn't we do well even though we saw in that earlier video clip that of course it was based on what was it based on sand it was a foundation on sand well it's also the fact that we've got the first nurse that gave that the, the nurse that gave the first jab ironically 
the jab that's causing so many serious adverse reactions and deaths, and Amanda Pritchard, who's not a nurse, she's not a medical professional, she's not a doctor, they're accepting this award on behalf of the NHS. So I just thought that that was a little bit um, ironic. Okay, but of course, the real danger in the NHS at the moment, uh, never mind the awards, is this, which you've been speaking about uh, for quite some time now, but it gets worse and worse. The 100 day challenge, uh, acute hospital discharge, 100, cha 100 day challenge. I'll just bring up part of this on screen and, and get you to uh, comment. So we're going to identify patients needing complex discharge support early. We're going to ensure that there's a multidisciplinary engagement in an early discharge plan. Uh, they're going to set the expected date of discharge um, within 48 hours of admission, ensuring consistency of process, a seven-day work, a seven-day working to enable discharge of patients during the weekends, treat delayed discharge as a potential harm event, and stream uh, streamline operation of transfer of care hubs. And it goes on with a few other things. This is radical, radical change of the NHS. The, the NHS will no longer be like anything we've ever remembered. Yeah, and, and sorry, Dan, no, just no, before really you comment, uh, just make the point. Uh, we're already seeing excess mortality in homes, uh, and we've been seeing it for the last two years in people's homes. This is only going to exacerbate that. And that's, that's entirely the point, Mike. And what we're seeing, and I really have got to highlight this document because this document was released on July the 4th. This is the 100-day challenge. So it finishes on the 30th of September. So what it effectively means is that, that all the trusts in NHS England and Wales, I believe, have been issued with this challenge of clear out your hospitals. Like get rid of everybody in your hospitals now. You've got 100 days to do it and you've got 100 days with which to get a policy in ready for the autumn. Now, this would suggest to me that they are expecting massive influx of patients in the autumn because we've got an ambulance problem, so we can't get people out of hospital. So now this challenge has been issued, and I've spoken to EP, and he has seen exactly this in practice now. It really is the buzz around the whole of the NHS is get everybody out as quickly as possible. And they're even going to discharge people over the weekends. And it's very difficult to discharge people over the weekends historically, but they're going to do it 24-7 now. So we need to be watching for people to be discharged very, very quickly, really quickly. This is, this is going to end on September the 30th. And yet, Debbie, we know many people who've been in hospital for protracted periods because the hospital can't get any proper diagnosis as to what's wrong with them, particularly if they've gone in complaining that what's happening to them, they believe, is a vaccine adverse reaction. Test after test after test after test and no proper diagnosis. So this is, this is why this thing is so cynical. Um, what are the chances of getting a diagnosis after um, in inside 48 hours for most people. I would say very, very small indeed, particularly if you believe you've got vaccine damage. So uh, we had this uh, comment from Sir David Sloman, the Chief Operating Officer of NHS England. He was really summarising, well, you were summarising what he said. So I'll just give you part of this. Next steps, a dedicated national NHS England team will work with each regional executive discharge lead to establish a launch meeting in each system that will ensure there's a focus on improving processes and performance around discharge. In the meantime, please do begin to discuss as a system your current application of the 10 initiatives and identify leadership and operational teams and governance and reporting mechanisms to help drive implementation over a 100-day period. Mm. So this is absolutely being rammed through. It's, it's disgraceful that none of this has been properly debate, debated in Westminster, and people should be climbing all over their MPs in order to ask them why they're not dealing with this. Debbie. And, and, you know, very quickly, Brian, what I would like to say is while they're discharging people this quickly, and I really am very concerned about this letter from Sir David Sloman, we have no primary care facilities at the moment. GPs aren't seeing people. So and where are all these elderly people that are, are 
meant to be called bed blockers where are they going to go we don't have a social care system in place to receive these people so mm. in a hundred days where are all these people going to go uh, well that that is the question isn't it we'll just say that if we've got um, members of the nhs um, listening into UK column at any stage and you want to give us information about how you see the effect of these changes, please do get in contact with us. Now we just put this lady on the screen very briefly, Dr Henrietta Hughes. She's apparently the new patient safety commissioner. So Debbie, is this all of our woes are over? Because if we have any problems, we can simply get in touch with this lady and she's going to, she's going to do a well, I can't say Jim will fix it, but she's going to fix it. Well, I should be writing to her, as you can imagine. Uh, Dr. Henrietta Hughes, she's apparently got a wealth of experience. She was what was called an, a national guardian for the NHS. And a national guardian is somebody that allows freedom of speech. And um, what concerned me a bit was that she said that patients' voices need to be at the heart of design and delivery. I was really hoping that she would say that patients' voices need to be heard and she's been appointed as a result of the Cumberledge report the, the do no harm report so she's going to be involved with the MHRA so I can't wait to see if we can try and get an interview with her and try to work with her to see um, you know where we can go with regards to our concerns on patient safety and the COVID-19 vaccine but we'll we'll take it from there we'll wait what watch and see what happens. We'll watch and see. Debbie, thank you very much for that. Now, we've been talking about the failure of the BBC to report on Ukraine as the war has gone on and it's become more evident that Russia clearly has the upper hand. Uh, the BBC has been drifting Ukraine into the long, uh, to the long grass. They don't want to talk about the casualties. Up to 500 Ukrainians killed a day, 30% of the latest frontline brigades sent to try and hold the Russians in the east of the country. These are vast losses. The only sensible thing is that a ceasefire is called. But of course, the West doesn't want that ceasefire. It wants to continue the war to the last Ukrainian. Uh, but the BBC doesn't want to talk about the bad news. So we just prompt people to be watching this aspect of the BBC, how the propaganda is carried out. So this was the front page from earlier this morning. Um, not easy to see anything about Ukraine, must see. Um, not easy to see anything about Ukraine, although in the centre of the screen is a little header, I wanted to fight, the army told me to sing. That is actually about Ukraine, um, but it's not obvious to anybody who's interested in what's happening with the war. Uh, gets on to local news, must read, and that we're really into the weeds of the BBC because this is where they want people's minds. Um, so where is Ukraine on this website? Well, it's this tiny little click up here. So the fact we have hundreds of people dying every day in Ukraine, thousands injured, the West is pumping in the arms, the BBC what doesn't want to talk about the reality. They don't want to call for peace in Ukraine because, of course, this Western NATO EU policy has got to be rammed on. But if you do click on the link, where is the, that going to take you? Well, let's have a look. It's going to take you to this page. And what is the major headline with the two men kissing? Ukraine to consider legalizing same-sex marriage. Now, there is some comment on the war to the right of that. You can see the man talking about the fact he was recruited, but because he's a pop star in Ukraine, they, they've asked him to sing. Um, the Ukrainians are doing well because they can now use the uh, American HIMARS rockets to uh, bomb cities. That would be a war crime if it was Russian, but of course this is Ukraine, so it's not a problem. And then we've got Ukraine displaying war trophies as if, if they are winning, but of course they're losing. So what we're actually seeing on this page is the real attack on Ukraine, because what is coming for Ukraine is a transformation of their society in line with the BBC's values and agenda. And it's really up to the Ukrainian people to wake up to the fact that we now have the BBC and Western media controlling the whole narrative around events in Ukraine and the war. Where does it go? Let's look at this video clip which is actually a discussion or a debate, a dialogue, an exchange in America. But uh, I think you'll see why it is uh, 
linked to what I've just said about Ukraine. Now, Professor Bridges, you said several times, you've used a phrase, I want to make sure I understand what you mean by it. You've referred to people with a capacity for pregnancy. It, would that be women? Many women, cis women, have the capacity for pregnancy. Many cis women do not have the capacity for pregnancy. Um, there are also trans men who are capable of pregnancy, as well as non-binary people who are capable of pregnancy. So this isn't really a women's rights issue. It's a, it's, we can it's recognize a that this impacts women while also recognizing that it impacts other groups. Those things are not mutually exclusive, Senator Hawley. Oh, so your view is, is that the core of this, this right then is about what? So um, I want to recognize that your line of questioning um, is transphobic, <laughs> um, and it opens up trans people to violence by not recognizing that. Wow, you're saying that I'm opening up people to violence by asking whether or not women are the folks who can have pregnancies? So I'm one, I want to note that one out of five transgender uh, persons have attempted suicide. So I think it's important Because of my line of questioning? Because so we can't talk about it? Because denying that trans people exist and pretending not to know that they exist I'm is denying that trans people exist by asking Are you? you if you're talking Are you? about women Are you? having pregnancies. Do you believe that the, uh, men can get pregnant? No, I don't think so. <laughs> so you are denying that trans people exist. Thank and that leads to violence. Is this how you run your classroom? Are students allowed to question you, Absolutely. or are they also treated like this, where no, you, no, no, they're, they're told that to they're at, opening up people to oh, violence? We have a good time in my class. You should join. Oh, I bet. You might learn a lot. Wow, I, I would learn a lot. I've learned you, a lot I just know. in this exchange. Absolutely. Extraordinary. Well, I'm amazed that he could uh, remain that calm. But of course, this is the agenda which the West and the BBC in particular is going to pump into Ukrainian society when Ukrainian is destroyed as a result of the backed war. So I find that breathtaking, that exchange. I think Mark has a brief comment. If... OK, Mark, we'll bring, bring you in. I can't resist that one. Thanks, guys. Uh, yeah, that is an example of the woke culture, of course, at its extreme. And she would call others extremists, but she is the absolute extremist and the ultimate denier of reality. She could just as soon say the moon is literally made of cream cheese, and to her that would be real. She's completely out of her head. I can't believe they even would have her talk to a sitting congressman, much less give her any respect to those views. Uh, I mean, that, that, the departure from reality is literally beyond words. Thank you for that. Well, we couldn't say any more. I had to do some homework as a result of watching that clip because I did not understand what a cis woman was. So let's put up the definition which I eventually found. Cis is short for cisgender, which refers to when a person's gender identity corresponds to their sex as assigned at birth. Wow. This is incredible stuff. Cisgender is the opposite of transgender. And I've got a little bit more here. Where does cis come from? Cissexual was coined in the mid 1990s by a German sexologist. There's no name, so this is an anonymous uh, report. He used the Latin preposition cis, meaning on the side of as a contrast to transsexual, trans being the Latin for on the other side of a cross. And then it goes on to become cisgender. So we have a whole new language which is going to be used to destroy values in society. And I will repeat what we have said many, many times that if you're a member of the gay society and you think you are going to be allowed to have a peaceful, uh, normal life in society as a gay person, no, that's not what's happening because the ultimate agenda is that there is no um, human being who has the attributes of being a human being. This is the transhumanist agenda. And this is going to be unleashed on Ukraine the moment the devastation is complete and uh, the full Western media can be, can be unleashed on the Ukrainian people. It's unbelievably sad. Um, okay, let's uh, come back onto the uh, war itself then. And uh, well, we'll start off with uh, the issue of exotic weapons. We've been talking about it, we've been hearing a lot about the uh, Russians' exotic weapons, hypersonics and so on, and others, as we were talking about on Monday's program. Uh, but uh, Defense News here is saying that Biden has designed Defense Production Act directives targeting hypersonics development. So the U.S. absolutely attempting to catch up here. Uh, and uh, that, But then uh, in another report here from Flight Global, 
uh, Lockheed Martin delivers airborne laser weapon uh, to US Air Force. So they, they have announced that uh, they have delivered an airborne laser weapon to the Air Force uh, to be used on fighter aircraft. Uh, and uh, they said that on the 11th of July uh, and in the first quarter of 2022, uh, they are going to continue the rollout of this. So the US very much attempting to catch up with what the Russians uh, have been up to for quite some time now. Yes, and of course, when the Russians were talking about a laser on the battlefield, the Western press were mocking them, but that's exactly right. Here's the US trying to catch up. Now, you mentioned, uh, Brian, that uh, the Ukrainians uh, now actually able to use um, US uh, HIMARS, was it you were talking yes, about? HIMARS, yes, HIMARS, yeah. Uh, well, in fact, uh, according to the Russians, at least, they've been attempting to use s similar types of weapons. In this case, they've decided it's not HIMARS themselves, but the Soviet, the old Soviet equivalent uh, on one of the uh, uh, nuclear uh, power stations uh, in the Donbass. Uh, and so as of today, Ukrainian, this is what the Russians were saying, as of today, uh, Ukrainian neo-Nazis uh, using unmanned aerial vehicles struck two 120mm mines on buildings near the, uh, the Zaporozhye uh, nuclear power plant. This is not the first cynical provocation of the Kiev regime at uh, radiation hazardous facilities uh, organized by Western handlers who, by realizing their criminal goals, are putting millions of Ukrainian citizens in danger at the hands of Kiev. So very much a uh, very Russian uh, position there, of course, but we're not hearing about this in the West. So it's fair enough to put that up. Uh, and then uh, on the China issue, uh, CNN, and I have this headline, uh, US Navy destroyer performs freedom of navigation exercise in the South China Sea. So we've got to continue to ramp up the tensions in that region. Um, so uh, they have been uh, driving around near the contested islands in the South China Sea uh, just to be a pain uh, to the Chinese. Uh, let's just see what this says. Uh, Lieutenant Nicholas uh, Ligo, lieutenant, of course, in the US, uh, a spokesperson for the US Navy 7th Fleet headquartered in Japan said, it was the second so-called freedom of navigation operation in the Paracel Islands, known as the Jisha uh, uh, Islands in China, uh, so far this year, and the third targeting Beijing's uh, excessive maritime claims in regional war waters during the same period. So that's uh, the CNN uh, coverage of this. What was the Chinese coverage of it? Well, here's china.org.cn. Uh, and they said the US military's action has infringed upon China's sovereignty and security interests, undermined peace and stability in the South China Sea, and violated international law and norms governing international relations. And that was uh, Tian Junli, the uh, spokesperson for the Southern Theater Command of the People's Liberation Army. And uh, facts, uh, this is a quote, facts have once again proved that the United States is in every sense a security risk maker in the South China Sea and a destroyer of regional uh, peace and stability. I'm afraid I struggle to uh, disagree. disagree with that yeah. comment. Uh, but anyway, as they continue to ramp up, let's just move to Australia very quickly, uh, where they have uh, been posting uh, B-2 Spirit Bombers. Uh, and uh, so aviation here, if you have a look at this uh, website, exclusive new pics of the B-2 Spirit Bombers at Amberley uh, Royal Australian Air Force Base, um, as uh, the United States continues to ramp up the situation uh, around China. Uh, but uh, not to be outdone, uh, the British uh, uh, representative of the United Nations, uh, the lovely Barbara Woodward, uh, is uh, wanting to spread things out because uh, Europe and, and China is not, a, Russia and China is not enough, or at least the European theatre in the South China Sea is not enough. We need to get into Africa as well. Uh, so here's Barbara Woodward, the uh, UK's ambassador to the United Nations. All actors, uh, she's talking about Africa here, should refrain, refrain from anti-United Nations misinformation and disinformation, which undermines mandate delivery and safety and security of peacekeepers, including in the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, the Central African Republic and Mali. Uh, she said, uh, since the Kremlin-backed Wagner Group deployed in Mali, we have seen a significant increase in the volume of dangerous lies being spread about MINUSMA's uh, mandate and activities. That's the uh, uh, United Nations multidimensional integrated stabilization mission in Mali is MINUSMA. Uh, and uh, she finally said, uh, the continued spread of dis and misinformation will lead to more lives lost. There's no excuse for uh, such activities. So anybody that uh, wants to criticize what these organizations, what the United Nations, what the UK and US are doing in African nations. Uh, and it seems that, you know, the more conflict stability and secu conflict security and stability fund money that goes into Mali and uh, DRC and uh, so on, uh, the more 
problems arise as a result. I don't believe that's a coincidence. So the problem here is that, again, Barbara Woodward attempting to justify uh, the creation of problems in these regions. Uh, well, I, I think it's been evident. We've reported now for several years on the EU's ambitions in uh, Africa. And uh, what is the routine? It's always to destabilize first to enable the control and then you're going to take the assets. And I think this is all part of it. Yes, and very so I was just going to add, but the irony here is that, of course, she's talking about misinformation and disinformation, but it's the governments that are pushing out that misinformation and disinformation. But we've got to clamp down on other people. Absolutely. So let's just very briefly talk about that in the UK, because John Penrose, uh, Tory party uh, MP for Western Supermare, has decided on a really cool addition to the uh, online safety bill. Uh, and uh, so uh, the purpose of this section is to reduce the risk of harm to users of regulated services uh, caused by disinformi disinformation and misinformation, he said. And so what he's proposing is, hold on to your hats, folks. Uh, he is proposing that every online content platform uh, gives everyone who is uh, contributing content to that platform a truth score. A truth score, so you get a truth score. If you're a truthful person, you'll get a high truth score and then your content will be distributed widely. And if you're uh, the likes of the UK column, you'll get a low truth score and your your information will not be distributed at all. So um, that's the way it goes. And uh, what can we say? You can't make it up. That's no. what we have to say. No, We cannot make it up. Uh, but don't worry, we can uh, rely on the BBC to explain what's going on with respect to uh, disinformation and misinformation online. Uh, they are attempting to suggest that this is the result of uh, mental illness of some kind or some kind of cognitive problem. Uh, and so they produced this nice little video. I suggest everybody goes and has a look at it uh, with people in tinfoil hats there. Uh, and it's entitled The Psychology Behind Conspiracy Theories. And they've got all kinds of people out of the woodwork uh, to, to explain uh, what makes some people uh, distribute conspiracy theories yeah. online. But BBC and others are very worried because the truth is very powerful and they're trying to relabel truth and that's a difficult thing to do. Indeed. Okay, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org and there are options to help us out there uh, or please pick something up from the UK Column shop uh, but do share our material on the various platforms while we're still there. Okay, well Mark, we're bring you back on screen because of course you've been busy over the last few days at the uh, red pill meeting um, we'll just bring the flyer up for that again um, a really remarkable man g edward griffin who's uh, the main uh, driver of this event and encouraged people to go and have a look at his many many videos um, on youtube and other platforms where he's he's talking about worldwide events um, but uh, you've been there on behalf of uk column uh, I've got a little audio clip. We can either hear from you first or play that clip. I think, tell us a little bit about how you found it and uh, what you discovered from your time there. Well, first I wanna give a shout out to Richard and Allie Halverson and their lovely child who's uh, one year, nine months old. They call her Bluebell. Uh, interestingly, on the first day of the Red Pill Conference, the eighth such conference, and it took place this year in Indianapolis, the first day was July 9. They had just watched the UK column when I was on there July 8th, and they were dumbfounded that I was actually there. Um, they, they didn't expect that. And uh, they're a lovely couple from the UK. And in fact, they visit South Texas where I spend the winters from time to time. So it's a really small world. So they're among the uh, very uh, dedicated UK column viewers, uh, Richard and Allie. So that being said, um, yeah, Gia Ward Griffin spoke uh, at the end of this to sum this whole thing up. And then he had a breakfast the uh, following Monday morning that I also attended. And he founded Freedom Force International, which in turn uh, began to produce the Red Pill Expo and these local chapters called Red Pill Campuses or Universities. And long story short, just so people know, Freedom Force International, the title of it actually means that people who believe in freedom and liberty should have power, not just knowledge, but power, the power that comes from knowledge and should be able to apply it in, in a local and regional sense, not just go to annual meetings and eat, greet and retreat and then wait until the next year, not just that, 
but again, be effective in a day-to-day -day basis in their local communities and their local regions. So Freedom Force International is about solutions. And G. Edward Griffin, a longtime um, uh, uh, force in, in the freedom movement for much of his life, uh, explained that very clearly. And a lot of people are participating. So with that, yeah, we can listen to John Kleisick, one of many great speakers at this year's conference, the Expo, they call it. And he wrote a book called The School World Order. And he'll explain a little bit here about what he's about and his place in the conference. And this is Mark Anderson, UKcolumn.org, at the second and last day of the 2022 Red Pill Conference, the eighth such conference, this one in Indianapolis, Indiana. And I'm speaking with one of today's speakers, John Kleisick, and he wrote the book, The School World Order, looking at the way education has been used to manipulate society toward a very dystopian future unless we turn things around. John, thanks for talking with me. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, what was the... What's the takeaway of the message that you delivered to the audience today here at the 8th Red Pill Conference? Well, you know, to simplify it, it's that, you know, all the ed tech, that's the education technologies that have really sort of gotten a boost uh, after COVID uh, are not just about sort of uh, keeping kids safe uh, and sort of, you know, being able to personalize their learning. It's, it's more about data mining to program artificial intelligence to build a social credit system and also to uh, engineer transhumanist technologies such as brain-computer interfaces that will merge everybody with the AI. That's the social credit system modeled by China, specifically a reward and punishment system, correct? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And, and you know, it's actually financed by uh, American corporations such as BlackRock and Salesforce, who they, they fund Alibaba Group, which uh, runs the Alipay system, which runs the Sesame Credit system, which is the, the name of the Chinese social credit system. Yeah, I've heard of Mark Benioff of Salesforce. Interestingly enough, Salesforce was given the voter a registration list of the state of Georgia by Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State of Georgia. Just a side note, so that, that control comes in so many ways. But anyway, back to education. Uh, what I saw today was you, you showed early technology, the early founders of the education system we have, really miseducation would be a better word, John Dewey and many others, the B.F. Skinner experiments, all these contraptions, but that's led inexorably to this digitization and this uh, collecting uh, the political opinions of children, schools becoming more indoctrination than they really are about learning, and, and all this technology coming together, it's kind of a scary thing to look at. Yeah, you know, so so the uh, modern adaptive learning courseware is just the digital version of what, what B.F. Skinner called his Skinner box teaching machines. And so it basically uses his operant conditioning uh, psychology to basically replace academics with workforce training uh, through a pedagogy that's called outcomes-based education. So through things like uh, it's called the... Um, PPBS, so that's uh, Programming, Planning, and Budgeting Systems, which comes out of the U.S. military and then was later used uh, for, for businesses, uh, and then other iterations like called Total Quality Management through sort of uh, public-private partnerships. They're using uh, business outcomes and then sort of uh, molding uh, learning to meet those outcomes through these uh, operant conditioning uh, psychology algorithms. We're nodding here, Mark, because, of course, the fact that he's using all those words and terms around education should alert every parent. If you don't, if you don't understand some of the terms that are impacting on your children, you need to find out pretty quickly. So uh, I could imagine that was quite, quite a talk that he gave. It, it was. And uh, one of the things that came up later in that audio and per perhaps this audio will end up on the UK column website, we'll see, was that um, this is gonna popularize homeschooling like never before. So I'm gonna be checking with the Homeschool Legal Defense Association um, post 2020 COVID lockdowns, which already grew the homeschool movement to see if it's growing even more because there's really no way out. If this is what the tax funded public schools are gonna do, uh, any parent who's even remotely enlightened as to what's going on is gonna pull their kids out and this is ultimately what Mr. Kleisik uh, advocated. And of course, there's much more that could be said about his talk and many of the other talks. And a lot of that will come up on the UK Column website in the form of audio interviews and written articles and whatnot. So I'll, I'll ask viewers to look for that in the days and weeks ahead.
Okay, well, we're, as always, Mark, we're watching the clock, but um, you, you'd sent over this one, Upcoming Events, Crimes Against Humanity Tour USA. Um, I'll just bring, well, we brought that on screen. I'll bring in some faces as well. Uh, why were you interested in this event? Well, uh, the well-known uh, German barrister, Reinhard Fuhlmich, I hope I'm saying his name right, of course, uh, has been involved in this. And, and Dr. Judy Mikovits, um, I'm glad you brought this up. I had almost forgotten about it temporarily. Uh, they've been on a speaking tour since May, I believe, without looking it up. And it's still going on. They're adding cities. So it's kind of a traveling conference to call out the crimes against humanity via the COVIDocracy, via the um, dangerous COVID injections. Uh, you really shouldn't call them vaccines. As I learned at the Red Pill Conference, vaccines is a misnomer because they're not vaccines. So it's important not to use the medical establishment's language. And many on this tour would say that very thing. So this is ongoing. Uh, people can look it up. Just um, use DuckDuckGo, pr preferably not Google. Uh, Google is the Google archipelago now these, these days, as another author at Red Pill said. But you can look this up and learn where they're going to be. Um, they were not live streaming at first. Now I understand they are live streaming their events. So if you cannot attend in person, you can watch online probably for a very modest fee. So uh, many speakers uh, outlining what's going on with the COVIDocracy, uh, the uh, fears and actual you know, evidence that there's probably going to be more lockdowns, certainly more claims of these so-called cases and more fear mongering and ratcheting up the possibility of, of, of more uh, uh, heavy social control. So it's just another good event besides the Red Pill Conference to keep an eye on. Okay. And the Red Pill Conference uh, speakers also have their archived and live streamed videos as well. Okay, Mark, thank you very much for that report. You're going to be producing some written uh, material on that event and what the speakers have had to say. So we, we'll be looking forward to seeing that. I'll just bring this one on screen very briefly just to show people because I was fascinated by it. Uh, but you've got a copy of a newspaper here. This is December 1894. And what is the article about? It's uh, people who are clearly unhappy about the vaccination program and they're warning about it. Uh, just 30 seconds comment and then we need to uh, move on, Mark, please. Well, I just found this article at a newspaper distributed at the Red Pill Conference. The newspaper is called The Flame. And it's interesting, just as a historical note, that I hope I say it right, the, the English town of Leicester um, was subject to um, uh, 19th century laws in the 1840s, 1850s regarding a smallpox breakout and the people were locked down and forced to take vaccinations way back then. So what I'm basically saying and what this author is saying in this article is we've been here before. Of course, things are much more technocratic now and more dangerous to human freedom now, medical, political, and other freedom. But we've been here before. And there was, uh, as the article shows, there was, uh, uh, and there was political cartoons against forced vaccinations even at that time in the mid-1800s. So yeah. that's just an in interesting historical footnote. Yeah. Okay. And, and uh, it was, it's Lester, Mark, just so, just so as you know. Say it again. Lester. Lester. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. No problem. Okay. Let's uh, let's uh, move on then to uh, the Telford situation and the Telford child abuse report, which has now been published. Uh, and uh, so, what are we going to say about this? Well, first of all, uh, we have a little bit of uh, uh, an introduction from the chair. Uh, Tom Crowther of, of the QC of the the chair of the inquiry. So let's just have a listen to what he said about it when the report was launched. The overwhelming theme of the evidence has been the appalling suffering of generations of children caused by the utter cruelty of those who committed child sexual exploitation. Victims and survivors repeatedly told the inquiry how, when they were children, Adult men worked to gain their trust before ruthlessly betraying that trust, treating them as sexual objects or commodities. Countless children were sexually assaulted and raped. They were deliberately humiliated and degraded. They were shared and trafficked. They were subjected to violence and their families were threatened. They lived in fear. Their lives were forever changed. They've asked over the years, how was this allowed to happen? 
In brief, I found the following. More than a thousand Telford children were exploited over decades. Obvious child sexual exploitation was ignored. Information was not properly shared between agencies. Key agencies dismissed child exploitation as child prostitution. Key agencies blamed children, not perpetrators, for exploitation. Exploitation was not investigated because of nervousness about race. Teachers and youth workers were discouraged from reporting child sexual exploitation. And as a result, offenders were emboldened and exploitation continued for years without a concerted response. The CSE response, when it came, came from committed individuals, not from top-down directives. And even after Operation Chalice, the Telford CSE prosecutions, West Mercia Police and the Council scaled down their specialist CSE teams to virtual zero. Thoughts? Well, my immediate thoughts are the tragedy that he's uh, describing is, of course, real. And I'm sure what that man has heard over a great many months has had an, an impact on him because we know some of the material is just vile. But of course, none of that abuse could have continued on the scale it did without the connivance of the very authorities that claim they're in position to protect children. It's not only the police, it's local councillors, it was councillors, it was members of government who knew what was happening. Indeed, many of them, or a significant number of them, were actually involved in the abuse itself. All of this is an open secret. So it's not just the perpetrators, it's the fact the perpetrators were allowed to do this because the authorities which say they're there to protect children do no such thing. And the other thing I think we need to say is, of course, the inquiry itself refused to hear testimony from some individuals that it regarded, I think, as too dangerous as to what they were going to say and reveal. No, well, I'm going to correct you on that one because this is where the confusion comes in. This is the bit that really grabbed me. So if we put the EXA inquiry on, yeah. you're talking about the EXA inquiry. And you know, this report came out yesterday, and we'll talk about the media response to this in a second, but this report came out yesterday, and The Guardian's article, for example, said, report published, but when you look on the EXA site, the latest report is nothing to do with uh, with Telford at all. So then you, you ask, well, why not? And of course, the reason is because this has got nothing to do with EXA. And the reason that they the Telford decided to set up their own inquiry was because EXA had decided not to use Telford as one of their uh, places of interest. So they weren't even investigating Telford at all, never mind excluding anybody that, that you know. So they ran, they ran some kind of sideline uh, truth gathering exercise, which didn't actually feed into the EXA inquiry at all and, and isn't in any way considered as binding evidence. So anyway, this is the website for the, uh, for the Telford inquiry. Um, and uh, and the, the report itself is available to read from that. Um, and what, one of the things that interests me and one of the things I'd like to, uh, we haven't discovered yet why this is, one of the things that interests me is that on most of the pages of this report, and there's four main sections to it, the footnotes are redacted, and I'm just very interested to understand why that is, uh, because uh, I, I don't have any answer for that at the moment. But as, if we find out, we'll let you know. But I mean, let's have a look at some of the things that it says. This is giving some of the examples. Uh, it's a, this is a report from a, a policeman. Uh, it's suspected that girls are being used at this flat. Uh, so this was a, an actual uh, police report. Uh, a, a named premises, premises A, as prostitutes, another brothel, uh, that's being used by USG, a named premises, premises B. Uh, a named premises, premises C, is the home address of adult male A and adult male B. Uh, adult male B has young girls in his house from 10.30 p.m. onwards to the early hours. Both white and young Asian men arrive at the house. A small red uh, car appears to do the shuttle service uh, to the house, mainly dropping off Asian youths. So the, the fact that is that in uh, the vast majority of cases, in according to the, the inquiry anyway, the vast majority of cases of this in Telford were uh, involving Asian gangs and Asian uh, ethnic backgrounds. But it wasn't exclusively that, and we've got to uh, keep that in mind as well. Uh, let's go on. Uh, so this was uh, the report itself, uh, some of the uh, conclusions. It would be, in my judgment, a wholly wrong and undoubtedly racist to equip memberships 
of a particular racial group, group to a propensity to commit CSE. That said, on the papers disclosed by key stakeholders, it is an undeniable fact that a high proportion of those cases involve perpetrators that were described by victim survivors and others as being Asian or often Pakistani. Uh, the inquiry has itself also heard the such accounts from victims survivors. Now, here's the thing, uh, we'll just bring the final uh, quote on here. In relation to the early 2000s, there was a feeling that certain individuals in the Asian community were not targeted for investigation into child exploitation because it would have been too politically incorrect. I don't buy this excuse, right? I don't buy this excuse. These were criminal acts. It doesn't matter who committed criminal acts. It doesn't matter whether you're concerned about, or it shouldn't matter whether an individual in authority, in the, the local authority or in the police, is worried about that it's Asian gangs that are running this thing. Uh, this seems to me like a smokescreen excuse for why nothing was done. And of course, while you've got low level uh, paedophilia going on uh, uh, in the community, uh, where you can target uh, or you can blame a certain section of the community, then so-called high level paedophilia can go on with impunity without anybody really noticing because all the focus is on that. Well, I, I totally agree with this. This is, this is to do with a cover-up because the real people allowing this to happen are operating at high level. They're in government, they're at the high level of authorities which say they are there to protect children. Um, so what was the media response? Well, this report came out yesterday. And the media response was this, a report in The Guardian, over 1,000 children in Telford were sexually exploited, inquiry finds. Uh, and from the Shropshire Star, Telford CSE report suggests council was not champion on issue, claim expert, claims expert. And if you type, uh, if, if, you, if you have a look on the various uh, search engines for anything else on this, there is very little, if anything. Which, uh, which is the normal routine, because the moment the information comes out about the abuse, the media, the BBC in particular, simply doesn't want to follow down the path. The right. BBC can investigate crimes by the SAS in Afghanistan, as they've done in a very detailed piece, but the BBC is unable to investigate this level of trafficking and abuse. Yes. So well, a lot more to be said on that. Well, Debbie, we're going to bring you back in. I'm going to say gently with an eye on the clock and because this was one of your articles, so we're talking the subject to the abuse of children. Uh, we've got to talk about um, uh, this one. Bill Gates refuses to reveal why he flew on the Lolita Express with Je Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, this man, Mr. Gates, is everywhere in UK at the moment. He has fingers in every pie, political pie a public sector pie in UK, I think we need to ask some questions about who exactly he is. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And, you know, when you look back, you can see that Bill Gates has been involved in the in our NHS since, well, that article was 2001 when he started talking about Microsoft updating, digitalizing NHS. So technically, I'm guessing he's had his hands on our data um since early to, well since 2000 pretty much um and i just wanted to explore who bill gates is and how much influence he's got in the nhs in the mhra in pretty much everything that's associated with our health service right so so we've got a couple more i think very important headlines one's from insiders it says it says insiders say bill gates was an office bully who pursued sexual affairs and that his squeaky clean image was merely good PR. There's, of course, been a number of reports over the uh, world media about these things. Uh, Yahoo here, Bill Gates hosted nude pool parties and got drunk pretty easily. Um, I'll, I'll do one, bring one more up on here. We've now got the fact that many people picked up that Bill Gates appeared to come into London at the exact time that the fraud over Boris Johnson's resignation was reaching a peak. Um, he flies into the country, presumably no, no protocols for COVID or any of the other things holding people back at airports. I assume he didn't lose his baggage. Um, but at the same time, this is the man you've highlighted at the bottom, who's pumping out things like happy 10th birthday to CRISPR, one of the most important inventions in medicine, biology and agriculture. So we've got a man of dubious personal values 
who is being allowed to get involved in everybody's medical and genomic data. This is wrong. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, as we'll come on to see, it gets worse. You know, how much involvement has Bill Gates got in the whole leadership contest, the NHS, the MHRA, regulation or enabling of medicines? And I think we're going to come on to see that he is very influential and possibly his reason for coming to London was rumoured to some, something to do with animals, I think, and agriculture. But um, so, no, let's, uh, yeah, you carry on, Brian. Let's well, look at this we, next we, slide. We popped on the screen there that uh, from the expose, Bill Gates is the primary funder of the MHRA and owns major yeah. shares in both Pfizer and BioNTech. Is it any wonder that MHRA authorised the jab for use in children? Um, and then we've we've got these medical devices coming in. We've got June Rain getting very excited about her job is to make it easier uh, and quicker for patients to access medical devices. She's acting as a sales rep for these companies. But as, you, as you've highlighted, we've got Gates as an immensely powerful person controlling some of the companies, but he's also controlling the MHRAs which is supposedly the regulator. Yeah, and you're right. You know, June Rain is a is a farmer rep. That's what the MHRA are. But what concerns me with that is the medical devices. And if you, um, I think we're going to come on to see um, what this tech tats are. Um, you can see on your screen what's a tech tat, and this is really replacing your iPhone and implanting it into your arm. It's putting like a motherboard into your arm. These tech tats are going to enable uh, maybe for you to go to the doctor once a year for a checkup. But more importantly, <laughs> doctors will contact you. You won't need to contact a doctor anymore. And every single bit of data that you want will be on this electronic tattoo. And who's funding it, we ask ourselves, Brian. I wonder who. Well, I've got a suspicion it's Mr. Billy Gates again. Uh, we've got another one here. So this is what you, this is, you're referring to this. Uh, Tech tattoos will replace smartphones, and it's to keep you safe, Mike. As always, the, we've only got your best interests at heart, um, so people can freeze the screen. Apologies, the text is very small, but it's talking about what these things are. We're going to show you a, a video clip in a minute, uh, but this is where it moves on, and, and we can see where it's heading by the screen lower left, where we've got the robotic hand interacting with the human arm. And uh, we've got a highlighted piece of text, but Bill Gates in his recent admission of other uses of those, these digital tattoos was actually referring to the electronic tattoos developed by Chaotic Moon, a Texas-based software design and development company focused on software, mobile development and design. The Chaotic Moon tattoo uses a biotechnology-based technique that aims to analyze and collect information from the human body through it. Uh, let's have a look at this little clip. Here at Chaotic Moon Studios, we're exploring a new frontier of biowearables with a project we're calling Tech Tats. So this is really going beyond what the fitness tracker is. And we're right now looking into the medical field specifically because there's a lot of monitoring devices that take up a lot of room and space. So rather than going to the doctor once a year to get your physical, this tech tattoo could be something that you just put on your body once a year and it monitors everything that they would do in a physical and sends that to your doctor. And if there's an issue, they could call you. So the tech tattoos can really tie in everything into one package. So it can look at early signs of fever, your vital signs, heart rate, everything that it needs to look at to notify you that you're getting sick or your child's getting sick. So another beautiful thing that Tech Tattoo kind of takes over and disrupts the market is in the banking industry. We carry wallets around and they're so vulnerable. With the Tech Tattoo, you could carry all your information on your skin and when you want your credit card information or your ID, you can pull that up automatically through the system. So the great thing about this idea is that it not only serves a really awesome purpose, but it can also be really aesthetically fun. So tech tats are something that I'm passionate about and our team here at Chaotic Mood is very passionate about and we're excited for the public to see what we've been creating and to really change the industry of technology with something like the temporary tattoo. And Chaotic Moon is excited to bring it to you in the near future.
So this is all coming through the pipeline. It's not going to be debated. It's policy that's uh, just being drifted in behind the scenes. And um, Debbie, I know that you just want, we, we've got a few moments left, but let's uh, finish off with Bill Gates because you're also highlighting Bill Gates' relationship with people now standing for prime minister. So we'll bring on uh, Penny Morden here. And uh, you've got a nice mix, Penny and Billy. And this is because he signed the foreword to her book. Well, he so wrote it. He didn't just sign it, he wrote it. Oh, he actually wrote it. Yes. Okay, well, there we are. Um, her book, but he wrote it. Well, fine. Um, I need to find somebody no, like that. I mean that. the foreword, not the uh, whole book. Absolutely, right. he wrote the foreword. Okay. So um, what, what, what can you say? Um, you have a relationship with Bill Gates, just like the ordinary person on the street. Well, look. Penny Morden, and I know we're, we're, we're cut for time, so I'll just very quickly tell you, she used to be a magician's assistant. She was sawn in half by the president of the Magic Circle. So she's got a pretty uh, pretty good history and magic. And also she's a patron of, of a, a trustee board of a place called Weimaring Manor Trust, which has been featured in Britain's Most Haunted, and it's got a really dark past. So then when you see Penny Morden photographed with Billy Gates, you've just got to ask yourself questions of, well, you know, has Bill Gates bought Penny Mordaunt the same as he's bought the NHS, the MHRA and, and pretty much the UK health system? Uh, yeah, we need we need answers to these. Let's bring on the next one. Um, we've got Mr. Hunt here, Jeremy Hunt, Microsoft founder Bill Gates warns of bioterrorist attacks and urges world leaders to use germ games. Well, those certainly happen to prepare in an interview with Jeremy Hunt. So there's obviously an easy connection there. And here's Pretty Patel, Bill Gates and Pretty Patel. British innovation is helping to make the world safer for us all. Well, of course, that's the great lie. The opposite's true. Um, Pretty stood down from the leadership contest, but nevertheless, she's pretty powerful, well, according to that article. Sure she's going to end up in a job afterwards. Well, so. absolutely, but she's still a very powerful person. So we just like to say, what is the relationship between these politicians and Bill Gates? And um, we think a lot more people in UK should be delving into the background of Mr. Gates mm. uh, to understand exactly what policies he's got in store for us. Debbie, last comment. I think you've said it all there, Brian. Uh, I think we need to find out who is managing Bill Gates, uh, who is handling Bill Gates, and what, who is handling us, because it seems that uh, it's not who we think it is. Indeed. Okay, Debbie, thank you very much. Uh, Mark, thank you very much for joining us as well. Now, I would say we will have an extra time. So uh, for those who are uh, signed up members with the UK column, uh, we'll see you in a few moments. And we've got some very interesting material still to discuss, which we'll bring in on that. I'd like to say a big thank you to the lady. Now, Bahrain, but that sort of Middle Eastern area, uh, we received a very nice little gift this morning. So uh, I'm sure that you will know who you are. Um, thank you for sending that through. And thank you to the other people who've been sending us some really lovely emails thanking us for what we're doing. And we'll just add with a smile on our faces that the common theme is thank you for keeping us sane. So there we are. Yeah. We'll be back at the same time. Lost track of my days now Friday. on Friday. We'll be back at the same time on Friday. Thank you for joining us. Bye-bye.